This is Outstanding in the Field, a podcast by Perennia highlighting production practices, pest management, and more for field crops in Nova Scotia. I'm your host and provincial field crop specialist, Caitlin Condon. This episode, my colleague Sunny Murray joins me once again as we discuss the do's and don'ts of strip tillage, including how it fits with different systems, as well as equipment requirements and maintenance. So we're pleased to have Keith Martin as our guest here today. Keith is the second generation owner of MK Martin Enterprises in Waterloo County, Ontario, where they focus on farm equipment manufacturing, including mowers, gravity boxes, and strip tillage equipment, which happens to be the hot topic of today's conversation. So Keith, to get us started, could you give us a little bit of your background and uh, how you got interested in strip tillage? Yeah, so obviously we're farm equipment manufacturer and we had not done much in tillage at all and in 2011 we started looking around at something that might make sense and we found the strip till equipment rather intriguing which we ended up getting into however I had very very little knowledge of agronomy and soil and what all it does so it was a huge learning curve for me to start getting uh, knowing what soil is and what it can do. And it's been a fun journey for sure. Why do you think so many machines are being built or uh, designed and fabricated in Canada? What, what is it about Canada that uh, lends itself to, to these machines? There are a lot of different ones sold in Canada, but as far as manufactured, I believe we are one of the only ones that manufacture in Canada. Mm -hmm. The idea was largely born in the Midwest where they do a lot of dry land farming and some of the farmers were struggling a little bit with no-till, especially corn and corn no-till, just so much residue and their soil temperatures were not warming up fast enough because of all that residue. So they were looking for other options, but were not prepared to go back to full conventional tillage. So hence the strip till thing was born. And in fact, that's where our design came from, from a company in Nebraska is is whom we we connected with. So So if you could take us through kind of like a year of field operations, like when, when do we pull those strips and go from there? If you get into heavier clay soils, that makes it a little more challenging. I have done strip tilling in the spring um, in heavier clay soils, but you have to be really, really careful because you don't want to bring up that that lumpy clay on top because if it dries out, you end up with a brick. We all know that. So I would suggest that if you're into the heavier soils, then the fall strip tilling is probably the best on, on the heavier clays. The challenge with fall strip tilling is you have to get out of it before it gets too wet. If it gets too wet, you just end up making a mess out of things. Your strip till doesn't work properly. You're not gonna create a nice strip. In fact, if it's, if it's too, too wet with a shank machine anyway, um, you can almost end up with an eaves trough because you just open up that soil and you've got a, a crevice there that doesn't close properly 
and it's it's a disaster. So if there is wheat in the rotation and you're stripping into wheat, get it done as soon after that wheat harvest is off as you can. When it's nice and dry, you'll end up with a beautiful, beautiful berm. I'm taking my wheat off first two weeks of August. You're saying pull those uh, strips middle of August that early? Probably what I would suggest to do is a little bit, a little bit of regrowth happen because it will happen. Um, burn it off, and and then get in there. Yeah, absolutely. There, there's why not? There's nothing. You're not going to touch that field again anyway. So pull the strips and 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 you're done. And, and uh, yeah, hopefully when spring comes, those strips are still in good shape. And if everything is right, you should be able to plant right into that. So if you've got clover stubble um, or clover in your wheat stubble, um, mm -hmm. or if you're doing like an oak cover crop or something like that, how would that affect the timing? Well, there again, so so obviously the clover, um, it's probably going to go back into corn or, or possibly beans as well. If we are going back to go back into corn, and you've got either clover or oats, you're gonna to wanna to let them establish a little bit so you get some nitrogen benefit out of it. So th then you have to play you have to play the game as how long you wanna to wait to get your nitrogen boost, but still be able to do a decent strip. Because mm -hmm. you're gonna have to leave, you're gonna to have to give the, the burn down a little bit of time to do its job to create a, a nice strip. So my, my uh, train of thought there was if I had uh, cross-seeded the red clover into my winter wheat, so then when I take the winter wheat off, usually I have this scraggly little clover plant coming up there. I, I was thinking run in right there as soon as I get the wheat off and the straw off. Usually we bale our straw off down here because we're in a livestock area, right? Uh, come in right then and uh, do your strip till before that clover really gets its feet under it and gets going. And then it will, uh, you're going to eliminate it in the strips for sure, but between the strips, it's going to grow just fine. And then do your burn down, uh, herbicide burn down later in the fall. What do you, what do you think of that system? That's actually not a bad idea at all because, um, your, your root mass on the wheat, will will till wonderfully at that point because your regrowth has not started yet and and you're right your clover has not established that well the root system isn't that strong it, that's probably not a bad idea at all I, actually i like it if you had manure in that system usually mm -hmm. we want to put that manure on before we're, uh, so we're going from wheat to uh, corn we want to get some manure on there we want to get it worked in I guess what you would do is uh, spread your manure, then uh, work your strips. Is that usually how it's done? Yeah, so I get the que that question asked a whole lot. Uh, if you can get your manure on and let it soak in a little bit, give it a day or two, because uh, it really makes a mess if you go over top of that with a strip till right after you applied the liquid manure. But that is probably the best way to go for myself and in my operation, I have all pack manure. I don't have liquid manure. So the, the nitrogen rate in pack manure isn't that high. So I'm not too concerned about the loss that I get out of that. Mm -hmm. So 
what I'm doing is I strip till everything in the spring. My soil type is so that allowed me to do it. I've got a little bit of clay, but I'm getting away with strip tilling in the spring. And the reason I like doing it in the spring is I can then also apply some of my nitrogen into the strip. And that, that to me uh, just makes a lot of sense. But then I, I do my stripping, I do my planting, and then I spread my manure. It's the last thing I do. So, so a lot of our guys, uh, they're getting in there too late in the fall to pull the strips. Uh, it's too wet. How do you know when it's too wet? How do you know to say enough is enough? Uh, I'm going to wait till spring, or this isn't going to work for me, or when do I, when do I know to keep working with it that this is doing the job? Like, where's that cut? Yeah, so there, there's a few signs. So the, the first year that we did it, we, we kept going in the fall and it was a mistake. It was just simply too wet. So one of the things, especially on a shank machine, because that's what I'm used to mostly, the blowout that comes off the shank and then you've always got coulters to, to try to capture that, that blowout and, and put it onto the berm. If it's too wet, that's just going to start bunging up and building up, and, and especially in clay soils, we just have a mess. And then the other thing is, like I alluded to earlier, is your shank. If it if it cuts a strip and you end up with a with a furrow that isn't closing up properly, just stop and don't try to keep going because you're not going to be happy with it in the spring. The potential of, especially if you're into rolling ground or sloping ground and you get water happening in that strip that is partially opened, it, it's gonna, you're gonna end up with a whole bunch of furrows in your field, which you do not want because you're just losing your topsoil. It's rolling down to the bottom of that, of that slope. So if it's too wet to go in with either a cultivator or a, or a disc harrow, it's absolutely too wet to strip till. So a lot of our growers, uh, they get pushed into a situation where it's uh, too wet in the fall. They got to do a strip in the spring. Do you think they're losing anything by not having that uh, fall uh, tilled strip? Not really. If, if they can get away with stripping in the spring. And, and so the other thing that we've been playing around with too is, is some colder kits. If, if you end up being forced to do it in the spring when you've got heavier clay, then we have to look at what we can do with cold crickets because, you know, if we, for myself anyway, if I strip in the spring and if weather works with me, that I get a sunny day when I'm doing it and I can give that strip an extra day before I plant into it, it'll warm up a few degrees, just, just that alone. So that, that just gives you a better, better atmosphere to plant into. So if I'm pulling strips in the fall, what does that ideal strip look like? Does it look different than the uh, spring strip or what do I want to see when I'm pulling those strips in the fall? Yeah, so the difference that I would do fall versus spring, um, in the spring, there's a set of packer wheels at the very back of the machine to kind of firm up that berm. In the fall, I would tend to invert those or remove them completely so that you've got a nice rounded berm 
um, that will then settle as your freeze thaw uh, thing happens uh, during the winter. Mm -hmm. so, so how high do I want that berm in the fall, ideally? Oh, if you can get three to four inches, it, it is great, for sure. So if I have lumps or a little bit of residue there in the fall, is that okay still? Or do I want a perfect seabed that I'm used to in the fall? In, in your situation, uh, I'm assuming anyway, you also have freezing and thawing going on. Those yeah. lumps, they'll, they'll, yeah, they'll disintegrate in the spring for sure. Okay, so uh, in, in the spring, what is my, uh, after I run things, what does my strip look like? Yeah, so in the spring, uh, you're going to want to have that berm closer to level when, when you start hitting it with a planter. If it's a little bit raised, it's okay, but you remember you've also got uh, fertilizer coulter that's going through that strip. Some planters will have uh, residue managers yet. Of course, if they're strip tilling, they shouldn't need the residue managers anymore. But the, the biggest thing is you don't want to, so, so on my planter, I went to a single disc opener rather than the V opener because I was finding the V opener just threw enough dirt out of the strip. And, and that creates a problem because now you've got a little bit of a divot when after the planter's gone through it. So yeah, so the strip, keep it close to level, a little bit of a raise is, is, is okay. So if I was just doing a spring pass, what's the thinking there? When I'm done that one pass in the spring, it, it wants to be uh, fairly well worked, uh, nice looking seabed. Your residue is totally removed at this point uh, from that strip by your trash whippers. And of course, it's a dark strip. Um, am I going a little bit deeper than if I made the uh, fall pass? I don't think I would. It depends a little bit if you're applying fertilizer at this point as well. So if you're applying fertilizer, you want to make sure that you get deep enough so that is below the root zone that you're not going to burn any of the any of the seeds. So for myself, I'm typically running between six and seven inches in depth. Whether it's fall or spring, I don't really change it. What I like about that depth, it gives you enough soil disturbance. It gives you a nice amount of even sidewall fracturing. So it, it just loosens that whole, whole strip and, and allows the roots to, to really, really penetrate. Um, so kind of along that same vein, where most of the residue and lumps are removed from that strip in the spring, do you have any special considerations when you're setting up the corn planter? Not really, because the, the corn planter is going to go into a situation very similar to full tillage again. Mm -hmm. So again, like, like I alluded, is the, I feel the single disc opener for fertilizer is fairly important because you've got, you know, if, you, if you've done, spring strip tilling you've got a very very mellow strip there now that's you know six or seven inches deep and there's a lot of soil nice soft soil that can be moved and if you with with the v opening discs 
and what I found, I was just moving too much dirt and it was, it was going off out of the strip. And then, then of course I ended up with a, with a little bit of a divot in, in, in my, my strip. So mm -hmm. aside from that, really uh, the one thing that, that sometimes you want to be aware of and, and could be adjusted if you wanted to is the, the gauge wheels or the, the seat opener. You might want to consider a narrower gauge wheel on that because if you have a strip that's eight inches wide at the top and your gauge wheels are a little bit wider than that, so they're they're riding on top of the portion of, of, of ground that hasn't been tilled, then it might be a little more difficult to keep your seat depth consistent. So you, you may want to narrow the, 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 the gauge wheels. So do you want that gauge wheel running in the strip or outside of the strip? My my gauge wheels are are they they they're pretty much right on that on the inside. Right on that edge. On the inside of the yeah. edge. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of the guys have uh, stuff dangling off the front of their uh, planter, trash whippers and and coulters and that kind of thing. Those really aren't necessary anymore, or no. you certainly don't want to set them too aggressive, or you're going to blow out that strip again, right? So. Yeah, yeah. So there's no there's no need for any of that really, because you're going to be planting in the strip. But there's any any additional tillage is not not needed at all. And your residue managers, your strip till should have taken care of all of that. So exactly, uh, you're, you're kind of in, in a way you're taking that off and putting it on your strip bill. Correct. That's yeah. right. Yeah. When they're getting started with strip tillage, what are uh, the biggest mistakes you see happening? It depends a little bit. So we, we talked about when to strip till and when not to strip till. So that's probably one of them. The other one that, that probably people stumble on a little bit. And that is if, if you're expecting to start strip tilling and you're going to see a 20% bump in your, your yield right away, don't, don't go there because it's going to take time for your soil to adapt to what you're doing now. You're going, still doing some tillage, but you're doing less tillage and you're wanting to start to improve your soil health and what I found in my own experience is it probably took about five years and then until I really saw some measurable differences. And, and when I talk about measurable differences is I'm still applying the same amount of fertilizer I was when I did it eight, 10 years ago. But my yields, I mean, I've gone from, you know, you know, that 180 bushel corn to 250 bushel corn. Wow. So I, I'm growing, you know, the, the rule of thumb here in Ontario anyway, is if you're going to grow a bushel of corn, you have to give it a pound of nitrogen. And I'm, I'm probably between 0.5 and 0.6 pounds of nitrogen for a bushel of corn. So, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm just excited with where this is going. And I guess I will add one other thing yet too. And that is, if you're gonna get into strip till, 
my hope would be that that the individual would also have a desire to start looking at other ways of improving his soil health and, and one of them being cover crops. Yeah, we're, we're big fans of cover crops. So uh, we, we have a lot of guys uh, that are on different parts of the spectrum, the technology spectrum, I'll call it. Uh, some guys are, are pulling uh, strips uh, with a smaller four row unit and they have a four row planter without a lot of uh, guidance systems or GPS. They're just doing it by, uh, by eye. We have other guys that are uh, set up in the field with RTK and auto steer and uh, are very exact in how they do it. Uh, what do you think is the minimum kind of uh, technology that's needed to, uh, to, uh, to make strip till work on, on some of these farms? Again, the answer depends a little bit. For sure, for the strip till unit, you're gonna to wanna to have some form of, of GPS guidance system. If your planter rows match the strip till unit, so if you're running six rows on the planter and the strip till, then I'm not so sure that you have to go with RTK. In fact, I don't even know if you have to have RT, um, uh, the GPS system on the planter tractor because I always say if you can't follow the strip, then let somebody else drive on, on the planter. It, you should be able to follow it. So, but if, if you are, are running, a, say, a six row strip till and a 12 row planter, but then you're forced to go into RTK just, just to get that consistency because um, anything less than that is not gonna be, be uh, accurate enough. Mm -hmm. For the sake of ease, the number of units on your strip till should match the planter? Oh, if you can do that, absolutely, for sure. That, that's the norm, is yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, makes the most sense. Uh, so what happens to that corn plant if it's off-center of the strip? I'm not too concerned if it's off-center a little bit on the strip. You're still, the roots are still going to find where it's easiest to go. Mm. However, if you get off the strip, you're, you're basically into a no-till situation and that, that seed is going to struggle a little bit more. For sure. Uh, but for sure, if you, if you have a GPS system on the strip till and not on the, on the planter tractor, you are going to veer off a little bit side to side, but you should be able to still stay in the strip. So what are the advantages with a trailing unit versus a three-point hitch unit? So on a, if you're in a six-row unit, just the, the ease of handling and everything, a three-point hitch mounted unit is, is beautiful. Mm -hmm. Once you get larger, you've got a lot of weight happening there on the rear axle of your tractor when you when you lift. So I would probably encourage to go to a trail unit at that point. And then the most important thing is to have the the tongue length similar in length between your planter and your strip till. Because if you're into a situation where you've got slight curves in your field, then it'll pull similar. Uh, and you should be able to stay on the strips. How, how many horsepower per row unit should a person be considering? On a shank system, um, we on ours, we like to suggest 25 horsepower per row. In some cases, you might be able to get away with 20 if you're in lighter soils, uh, not too many steep hills. 
you're going to be okay. But if you're going to, yeah, be getting to heavier soil, and for sure, if you start pulling anything to do with fertilizer yet, then you're going to want to a minimum of 25 horsepower per row. If you're into a culture system, you can probably get away with 20 horsepower or maybe even less. So there's always people wanting to play with cover crops and planting green, which can get a little much for some people. Uh, what advice would you have for, for people going down that kind of a path? And, and are there any systems that you've seen that really stood out to you? Yeah, so that's, uh, I personally don't have a lot of experience with planting green yet. I did try it one year and in, in, in my, it was my mistake. I did everything wrong possible. So it was not, it was not a success story at all. If you're going to do it and, and, and I mean, I will continue myself probably to try it again and, and learn from the mistake I have made. But mm -hmm. my, my biggest, my biggest piece of advice on that would be go slow. Don't be doing 50 acres and hope for some phenomenal results. Go slow, learn about it, figure out, you know, what cover crops work, what cover crops don't. How are you going to burn it off or kill that cover crop? You know, there's a, there's a huge learning curve on it. And am I saying that it's all wrong? No, I'm not. I, I think it has potential, but take your time. Learn, learn as you go, for sure. To, to counter that a little bit, the, the, uh, if, if you want to do it with training wheels on, it's, you know, grow your cover crop uh, the previous year into the fall, get your burn down on in, uh, you know, first two weeks of November, everything is going to be brown in, in uh, spring, right? Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times in, in our uh, climate, we don't get a lot of regrowth happening in April, May. So you really don't have a lot of time to get that burn down happening in the spring because you don't have the regrowth to take up the herbicide. So yeah, you, you gotta be careful and uh, take, take baby steps. I, I think I agree with you. Uh, try it on a few acres and yeah. Learn see, as you see, go. How, see how quickly those cover crops green up in the spring and, and, uh, and what, you're, what you're gonna have there for, uh, for a mask, yeah. Well, yeah, and the other challenge, well, it depends, and that's another thing you're gonna have to learn, but it depends what cover crops you're growing. Some, you can burn off in the spring very, very successfully. Others, as they're coming to life and, and, and wanting to grow and you try to burn them off, they resist that a little bit. They're, they're a little bit careful. And the, the one thing I had a plot, or still have a plot here that I'm working with Ontario Soil and Crop. And we had tried some clover as covers and whatnot, and then stripping it in the spring and planting and we had a really, really difficult time getting rid of that clover, uh, trying to burn it off in the spring. Uh, that is a difficult one. So when you have some green stuff happening there and the corn plant emerges, it does not like green. It does not like competition. So something really to be really, really careful with. So, so as people go down this uh, road of strip till, and I'm kind of thinking about the, the no-till machinery around the countryside. Uh, a lot of guys buy used equipment. Uh, they use it a little bit. 
and they have terrible results. And a lot of times it's the maintenance on the equipment, right? The, the, the coulter up front isn't as sharp or the same diameter as it was when it was manufactured. Uh, so now they're, they're not cutting through the residue. They're poking the residue down into the seed furrow and, and, uh, and guys get frustrated with it and they throw all the uh, technology out, right? Uh, so going down the road of strip till, you know, uh, you've had machines out there for a long time now. What's the maintenance or upkeep look like on them? Or what's the first thing uh, that comes up as a problem? Yeah, so there's a few things there. Basically, so in, in most cases, when you run a shank machine, almost all machines up front have a slicing coulter to cut your residue. That one there, I mean, obviously you want to keep it in good shape. But it will, even though it decreases in, in diameter, maybe a little bit, most times it will still cut. If you've got a good, a good pair of uh, gauge wheels that pinch the trash so that the coulter can still cut it. And, and then the shank, it's just a matter of making sure that you keep the points changed. That, that's just normal, normal maintenance on any piece of cultivation equipment. The other one is to make sure that, you know, most strip till units have some bushing, some, you know, there, there's, there's some movement happening and you want to keep it tight. Uh, so if the bushings are worn or whatever, whether the bushings or bearings or whatever it is, make sure you change those, keep them tight so that your, your rows still pull consistent so that you're at, if you're plant if you're, Pulling at 30 inch centers, keep them at 30 inch centers, keep them tight. So fairly basic, not too, too uh, difficult, but a few things, winter maintenance programs for sure. So at the beginning, uh, you said that we should strip till corn because it makes sense. And I think everything we've talked about today really feeds into that. Um, sounds like there's a lot of, really, there's a lot of flexibility to make it work for different systems and the right timing and the right things, just paying attention to, to that timing and to, you know, what crops you're following and, and getting the real quality strip. You say that's a fair summary. And yeah, absolutely. You, you, you hit it bang on for sure. Um, the, the one thing that I probably found most challenging is that I can make a strip till work you know, if you get into a loamy type soil, sandy type soil, anybody can get a strip till to work there. I mean, there, there's no, no real science to that. When you get into the clays and, and, and the challenge we have for sure here in Ontario is we've got some larger operators and their fields are not all right beside each other. Mm -hmm. So the variability of soils and, and, and Sonny, you alluded to too, it as well is you know even one given field can have two or three or four different soil types so that is the biggest challenge to come up with something that works all of those situations and then when proper timing so um, but can it work absolutely we, we can we can make it work in almost all situations it's really great to meet you and great to have you with us yeah, hopefully someday we can meet in person. Right now, not so much, but I, I definitely do want to get down to uh, the Maritimes again sometime. I, I've always offered, anytime we sell a machine down there, is, is to 
come down and, and help get them started and set up. But mm -hmm. unfortunately, the last two machines um, pretty much homebound. Thank you for listening to this episode of Outstanding in the Field. Stay tuned for a written summary of this episode coming up in the next edition of the CropLinks newsletter, which you can subscribe to by visiting our website, www.perennia.ca. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe on your podcast platform so you don't miss the exciting episodes we have coming up next. Follow us on social media at NS Perennia. Thanks to Perennia and especially to our marvelous marketing and communications team of Rachel Oxner and Patty Ryan for supporting this podcast. Tune in next month when I'll be brewing up a conversation on malting barley.